right, good morning, church. Uh, as always, I'm very thankful to be able to worship together and share God's word. Uh, glad you could join us. If you don't know me, my name is Sam. I am part of the pastoral staff. And yeah, we want to welcome you to our church. And this is a great season again uh, for more members and newcomers alike to be more intentional with the season of Lent, heading up to Easter and our special worship services, membership round coming up. And so all of those things, hopefully we can take part. And uh, again, friendly reminder, at the time of coffee, it's a great opportunity if you're new, again, to have something in your hand so it's not as awkward without anything there. But also for our members to use that 10-minute window or so uh, while you're waiting in line or grabbing snacks just to fellowship with both members, people you don't really know. I think that's just the best rhythm on a weekly basis to create a culture that's warm and hospitable as we're called to be. And so let's uh, continue to strive to do that. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time, we are nearing the end of our series that we've been going through. Uh, at large through the story of the book of Genesis, but more specifically the story of Joseph. And obviously, as you know, every story has a climax. And if you don't know what a climax is by definition, it is the point where the story has the highest dramatic tension. Uh, the climax usually occurs near the end of a story. And the way you know it's the climax is whatever primary conflict has been introduced in the story, it is at the climax that you're going to see the resolution where the rubber kind of, because almost everybody agrees, starting in Genesis 45, it is the climax of the story of Joseph. Why? Because the primary conflict in this story is very obvious in chapter 37. It is the conflict and brokenness that we see between Joseph and his brothers, right? That's what kind of kickstarts this whole story. The brothers are jealous of how much love that Joseph receives. They hate him and sell him off into slavery. And then begins this 20-plus year journey. And now we finally reach the climax. And the question we have to answer as the readers is, what is Joseph going to do when he sees these brothers who betrayed him, backstabbed him, and sold him off for dead? So that's where we're going to be landing in. So if you have your Bibles or your programs, let's turn to Genesis chapter 45. We're going to be reading from verse 1 through 15. Again, Genesis 45, verse 1 to 15. Uh, we are using the CSB translation, so if you're using anything other than program, please turn to that. And at our church, as always, if we can rise together as we open God's word so that we can show that we believe God is speaking, moving, and present anytime that we are reading from his word. Genesis chapter 45, starting from verse 1. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants, so he called out, Send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. But he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Verse 9. Return quickly to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, and your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and all you have. And there I will sustain you, for there will be five more years of famine. 
Otherwise, you, your household, and everything you have will become destitute. Look, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin can see that I'm the one speaking to you. Tell my father about all my glory in Egypt and about all you have seen and bring my father here quickly. Then Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin wept on his shoulder. And Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. It's the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, as we open your word and we particularly look at the story of Joseph and the reunion between him and his brothers, may you move and speak through your spirit in a way that really touches our hearts, moves us to see the beauty of the gospel once again. And so move your church and speak to us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So one thing that we all have in common in this room without question is that we are all in relationships in different degrees, whether it's with our family, our friends, our spouses, our kids, all of us know by default what it's like to be in a relationship. And if I had a quick mental icebreaker and asked you, write down the three hardest things for you to say genuinely in the context of a relationship, what would you write down? I would argue in most of our lists, these three usually will be involved in those three. Number one that's really hard to say is, I was wrong. Number two that's really hard to say I am sorry. And third, I forgive you. Generally speaking, the closer you are to someone relationally, the harder it is to say these things, honestly. And don't you find that kind of interesting, right? Like we all like the concept of these things and these phrases, but it's so hard to genuinely admit fault, right, to someone. Or to say sorry without justifying or getting defensive. Or when somebody wrongs you. To genuinely want to let it go instead of paying them back? Now why is this the case? Why? Genesis gives a context of humanity that tells us every single one of us are infected. We are cursed by what the Bible calls sin. And to put it simply, what sin does in our lives is it brings distance and destruction where there was once intimacy and nearness. Vertically in our relationship with God. And horizontally in our relationship with others. We see the immediate effects of this curse show up from Adam and Eve in the garden. Because what happens? The moment they sin, God says, I can no longer have you in my presence because I am holy and I cannot tolerate sin. So we see the first act of distance happen as a result of sin. They are banished and cast out of the garden. And now there is a distance between God and man. Not only that, towards each other, we see the moment sin enters the picture, they are now no longer near and vulnerable and intimate. There is now a lack of trust, a lack of vulnerability. They have to cover themselves up. There is now a horizontal distance we see. And the most explicit case I would argue that we see what happens when this curse is allowed to take its full effect is in Genesis 4. There are two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain grows jealous of Abel. This leads not only a distance relationally, but leads to ultimate destruction he murders him. And that is the end of what happens when the curse takes its full effect. And what the story of Genesis is doing, it is tracing this downward spiral of how sin causes unending relational brokenness, deception, and destruction. Now, I know this is applicable to all of us because we've all been hurt. We've all been hurt by someone. We know what it feels like to be sinned against. And at the same time, if we're honest, we also know that we have hurt people. We know what it's like to sin against people. And the question we are left with as a reader is, what is this 
predicament that humanity is stuck in, is there any hope for humanity? Because we just seem to constantly be in this cycle of hurting each other, sometimes killing each other, always creating destruction and distance. And the, the question is, what can possibly cure this infection called sin? And what can reverse this downward spiral that we're seeing in Genesis? And that's where we are gifted with Genesis 45. It is a gift from God because for the first time in the story of Scripture, we see someone respond to the curse and effect of sin, not with payback and retribution, but with this massive word that can be studied forever. It's called forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, I know the idea of forgiveness might be very familiar to us if you grew up in the church, but hopefully today we can have a fresh look at it based off the story of Joseph with the hope that we can see just how central it is to really understand the story and message of Scripture. So we'll look at it four ways. Number one, we'll look at the picture of forgiveness as seen through the story of Joseph. We'll look at the perspective that you need to have for forgiveness. Three, we'll touch on the practice of it. So, okay, in theory it's nice. Well, how do you actually practice it? And lastly, the power of forgiveness. So first, the picture. Uh, I want you to now think of something or think of the worst thing that someone has ever done to you. Be it a friend, be it a roommate. Be it a, a spouse, whatever, or maybe even your kids. The worst thing someone's ever done to you. Maybe somebody physically hurt you, slandered your reputation, broke your trust, betrayed you. The, the spectrum is huge. Now, again, I don't want to trivialize whatever pains we may have experienced in this broken world. But I can confidently say Joseph at the very least can relate, but most likely he had it much worse. Right? Like if there's anyone who can say, I've had it bad, it is Joseph, the man who... From the ones that should love and care for him most, his brothers, he is essentially sold off to be as good as dead into slavery. Now, there's a famous quote to stimulate our brains. I found it very helpful to kind of see a, a starting point. It says, quote, to return evil for good is demonic. That's the stuff of demons. To return good for good is human. That's human nature. But to return good for evil is divine. No, there is something divine, otherworldly, when you can respond to evil, not with evil, not even just recompense, but with good. And I think the way we see Joseph treat his brothers 22 years after they sell him into slavery from chapter 37 to 45 is nothing short of divine. In the sense that apart from God, I really think it is humanly impossible to do what Joseph actually does. Because instead of paying them back... He forgives them. Now let's look at the picture of it. How do Joseph's actions prove that he has forgiven them, not just by word, but genuinely from his heart? First, like I said, we have to keep in mind that Joseph's relationship with his brothers, since they sold him off, has been defined by the curse of sin, which is distance. Distance. Gives you a good framework to understand what sin does to relationships. First, there is physical distance because they literally send them away and ship them off to Egypt. He was once in the family in the home in Canaan. Now there is a physical separation that happened. And he is now in the foreign land of Egypt. And even when they first reunite, there is a palpable distance and separateness. Because number one, Joseph does not relate to his brothers as their Hebrew brother. But he is now relating to them up to this point as the Egyptian ruler. There is a distance there. Some clues in the text tell us in Genesis 43, 32, when Joseph throws a feast for them, they eat separately. Look what it says. They served him being Joseph by himself, his brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who were eating by themselves because 
Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews since that is detestable with them. So you're getting this feeling that even though they're in the same room, there is this distance and separation that's still at play. Not only is there physical distance, there's relational distance. The text tells us, if you didn't know, up to this point, Joseph has actually been communicating to his brothers through a third-party translator. Even though he knows the language, he speaks to them in Egyptian. Look at Genesis 40 to 23. It says, they did not realize that Joseph understood them since there was an interpreter between them. So they're not on the same page. They're not sharing meals together. They're not speaking the same language. Distance. Now, as I mentioned earlier, what caused this distance? It was sin. It was the effect of the sin that the brothers committed against Joseph. And now 22 years later, while Joseph has every right to pin the result of the distance on his brothers and to use it against them because life has gone his way, he is now authoritative, he has the power to pay them back. Instead, what does he do? Instead of living in the distance, instead of widening the distance, he seeks to close the gap. He seeks to regain intimacy in a way that Genesis we've never seen before. You see, in verse 1 to 3, we see Joseph, he is moved, he is emotional, he breaks down, he reveals his identity in his, for the first time in his native Hebrew tongue. And he says, I am Joseph. Is my father still leave living? Now imagine the brother's response, okay. This whole time, this guy didn't even know they spoke the same language. Let alone he's the brother that they sent to be sold. And this guy's saying, I am Joseph. They're terrified. In fact, they're so terrified. If you read the text, they don't say a word for 15 verses. That's how petrified they are, understandably. And so Joseph, knowing that, doubles down in verse 4 and says, I'm not just Joseph. He says, please come near me. It's me, Joseph, your brother. Now, from a macro point of view, it is quite remarkable that one way you can describe what Joseph then does is he basically reverses the effects of the sins that his brothers committed against him. Not with vengeance, which would only make it continue down, but with kindness. Let me give you a snapshot. In verse 5, his brothers left him without comfort or home, but instead he encourages them and comforts them. In verse 21, his brothers have been willing to allow him to die of starvation and thirst in a pit. And yet he feeds them with the feast and gives them provision for their trip back to Canaan. Verse 22, his brothers famously ripped off his coat off his back. He clothed them with the garments of Egypt. And in verse 22, his brothers sold him for silver. And yet he fills their sacks with silver to go back. He is essentially reversing the effects of sin. How in the world is Joseph able to do that? Where is all of this coming from? What we're seeing here is the first glimpse of what it looks like to break the curse of sin, relationally speaking. And it is only possible through the otherworldly act of forgiveness. Richard Foster, this is what he writes regarding forgiveness. He gives a definition I think is helpful. He says, and I quote, what is forgiveness? It is a miracle of grace whereby the offense no longer separates. It means that we will no longer use the offense to drive a wedge between us, hurting and injuring one another. Forgiveness means that the power of love that holds us together is greater than the power of the offense that separates us. That is forgiveness. And therein we see a clear parallel between the story of Cain and Abel and the story of Joseph and his brothers because both have to do with relational brokenness. Both have to do with brotherly affection or should be affection. Both have to do with envy and jealousy except the difference is two extremes. Cain murders Abel to show what happens 
The curse of sin, when it takes full effect, leads to the ultimate distance, death and destruction. But Joseph shows us there's another way. The presence and reality of sin is inevitable. That's what it means to live in a broken world. But the way to combat its destructive effects is not just with force and power and payback, but with grace and forgiveness. I personally love how the heartfelt reconciliation ends that we saw in, in, in verse 15. Again, they have not seen each other and, and related in this way for, 50, or for 22 years. And in 45.15, it's such an interesting ending. It says, Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. That's so anticlimactic. Right? Like, and then they just talked. But this is actually a clear allusion back to Genesis 37.4. Because do you know what the effect of sin was in their relationship? Look what it says. It says, when his brothers saw that their father loved them more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. When you are angry or bitter and someone wrongs you, is not the first thing that goes away from you, the capacity and desire to want to just talk to them. And yet here we see it comes full circle that the picture of forgiveness is a beautiful one. Where the brothers who were once distant are now brought near physically, relationally. And that is manifested that they're able to just talk peaceably. And that's the picture of forgiveness. It's a beautiful one. Now, much easier said than done. How in the world is Joseph able to forgive despite all the crimes and things that he has experienced at the hand of his brothers. Which leads him to, he had a certain perspective. Now, there's two aspects to the perspective I want to point out. The first is quicker, the second is heftier. And this perspective shows you how he was able to, in a genuine way, make sense of what had happened and to forgive. The first thing, absolutely crucial if you want to ever denial okay, or pretending that something someone has done to you doesn't hurt. That's not forgiveness. I know for me, that's how I was raised. I was raised that the godly thing to do is to act like you are invincible and nothing hurts you and turn the other cheek and avoid conflict at all costs. So when people would hurt me, when people would sin against me, what I would say is like, oh, it's okay. It's no big deal. No problem. It doesn't bother me. That's not true. I remember when I was still dating my wife, one of the habits I realized that is very unhealthy is I would say sorry's. Like giving out free candy. I mean, she called me out one time and she said, hey, you said sorry like 20 times today. What are you even sorry for? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I just don't want to get in conflict. I don't even know what I'm sorry for. And here's the thing about that. If you give out your sorries left and right, number one, they lose their value. Probably about as much as a penny worth. But if you try to forgive someone without even being honest about what they did and how they may have hurt you, that is not forgiveness because you have not even named the offense you are forgiving. Joseph doesn't do that. He doesn't just say in verse 4, all good brothers, the past is the past. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, please come near to me. And they came near. And imagine the brothers are thinking, what is he going to say? Does he remember? And he says, I'm Joseph, your brother. And he said, Remember the one you sold into Egypt? Oh, he remembers. He says it for what it is. You guys started this whole thing. I'm your brother and you left me for dead. He clearly knows how his brothers have sinned against him. He calls it for what it is, what that did to him and how that made him feel. And he's not excusing or pretending like his brothers did not sin against him. And that's what last week's sermon was all about. That's why Joseph takes this long journey before he even reveals himself. Because he wanted to see, do my brothers know what they've done to me? 
Do they really understand the gravity of their sin? Are they truly repentant? And this is where a quick note for clarification. This is how you differentiate between just forgiveness and what is birthed out of that, which is reconciliation. Joseph could have forgiven them, but if they were not truly sorry for and did not understand what they have truly done, then they could not have reconciled. Because forgiveness is from me to you. Reconciliation is a two-way two street for the parties to close the gap and be on the same page. Now, a lot more can be said about that, but just a little info for you. Again, reconciliation is birthed out of a heart of forgiveness. Now, going back, the reason naming the sin matters is because if you do not, the danger of misdiagnosing our hurt and we underemphasizing it is this. It's like putting a Band-Aid over a stab wound. You are covered aesthetically. You look like you're okay, but you are bleeding out. No true healing. You will leak, you will bleed, you'll be in pain, and everybody will notice it. But the band-aid makes it seem like you're okay. On the other hand, if you overemphasize, not accurately, but overemphasize and caricature the way you've been hurt, you will remain a bitter, resentful person no matter what the person does. So that's the first piece in perspective. Joseph acknowledged the sin for what it is. He was honest about it. Now the second one, and this is more important and hefty because I think this is the heart of what Joseph's all about. The perspective is this. Joseph believed with all his heart that God is in control of every single aspect of his life. Now, the fancy theological term for this of God's character is his sovereignty. And by faith, Joseph had an incredibly high view of God's sovereignty and control over his life. Now, again, a lot to unpack here, but it's absolutely crucial to understand this perspective he had because it's what led him to a place where he could truly forgive his brothers and what they'd done to him. Now, let's start here. On a human level, who was responsible for Joseph's suffering? It's not a trick question. It's the brothers. Absolutely, it's the brothers. They sinned against him in a real way. He had consequences in a real way. He really became a slave because of that. And he was really hurt and felt betrayed because of that. Now, if you're a, a non-God-believing, you know, unbeliever, which that's okay, we're glad you're here, the story kind of ends there. And so therefore you're angry. You can't make sense of this. How would my brothers betray me? And at best you're thinking, okay, I'll try not to get revenge, but how can I not? They jacked up my life. But in Joseph's eyes, and for every Christian who believes in this God, yes, he gives three back-to-back -back statements to show you his perspective of the events that transpired in verse 5 to 8. Verse 5, it should be up there. He tells his brothers, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves. You did do something, but God sent me ahead of you. Verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant of the land and keep you alive. Verse 8, the conclusion, therefore, my perspective is, it was not you who sent me here, but God. If Joseph did not have faith that there is a sovereign God at work in his life and that that God especially works through sin and through suffering, he would not have made it. Why? Because he would have just seen himself as a victim, no? I just got a bad card dealt to me, a bad hand. I'm a victim. The world is out to get me. And he would have probably lost all purpose in his life, all hope. He would have become filled with bitterness and vengeance. And I've, I've met people like this. And he would have just thought life is just a depressive, endless cycle where I'm going to get disappointed and hurt. And I am now the sad consequence of brothers who did what they shouldn't have done. They betrayed me. But we see Joseph 
he models and holds this delicate tension where on one sense he does not deny that his brother sinned against him in a real way. But at the same time, he holds that intention with a grander, more glorious view that God's hand is somehow at work in the midst of this sin and this evil that he experiences. In other words, Christianity is a lot more complex when it comes to the things that transpire in life. And the reason that's good news is because is life really that simple? Is it like, oh, bad things happen, oh, boo-hoo, God is evil, oh, good things happen, oh, God is good. When you try to make sense of your life like that and the longer you live, there's going to be a huge dissonance between reality and who God really is. Because life is much more 3D, is it not? Much more complex than that. I love this quote. Uh, it's paraphrased, but I think it does a good job of talking about this. It says, this was the secret of Joseph's life. He saw God everywhere. He had a profound sense of God's presence that he understood that in every event in his life, it must somehow be ascribed to the hand of God working behind the scenes. The sovereign God was at the center of Joseph's life, and now God is at the center of Joseph's forgiveness. Forgiveness is only possible when we come to see that those who have hurt us, even our enemies, are agents of the Lord, sent by him for reasons that we may never fully understand, and that these things have not happened just because of evil men, but because of a good God. In other words, God will never will for sin to happen in your lives. But the sin that does happen, he will use it for his purposes. And that's the heart of the story of Joseph. In fact, the very narrative of scripture will continue this theme that God is a God who uses the worst of evils for good. Because that's who he is and that's how gloriously sovereign he is. Look at Joseph's life as a case study. If you look at what happens to Joseph on an individual level, it seems like this guy is just getting jacked at every turn of the corner. Every point of his life, he is just, things are not going his way. You ever feel like that before, right? But the privilege is we know the full story. So let me play it out for you. This story starts with sin. Joseph's brothers are hateful, envious, and they, so they sin and they sell Joseph off into slavery. But if the brothers do not sin and don't sell Joseph into slavery, he will never get to Potiphar's house. If Joseph never gets to Potiphar's house, he will never be sinned against by Potiphar's wife as she falsely accuses him of sexual morality. But if Potiphar's wife does not sin against him and does not falsely accuse Joseph, he will never falsely be sinfully imprisoned. But if he is not imprisoned, he will never meet a cupbearer whose dream he will interpret. And if he never interprets the cupbearer's dream, Pharaoh will never find out who Joseph is. And if Joseph never comes to the attention of Pharaoh, he will never be raised up to be a second man in power in Egypt. And if he never becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt, everybody dies. And if Jacob's family dies, Jesus is never born. There are terrible sins committed against Joseph. But every single sin had to happen if Joseph is to play the role God planned for him. And I use this term. It was popular for, in the early years. I want to reintroduce it. The perspective Joseph has is a God-centered perspective. One that is a lost art for many Christians these days. God-centered in that he sees everything through the lens of God. And that allows him room to forgive. Why? Because God is behind even the greatest pains that he experiences in life. Now what does this mean for us? Uh, 
I was initially not the biggest fan of Joseph, okay. I thought it was like, okay, it's a cool story, whatnot, but I've grown to love it. And the reason I think is because all the characters in Genesis, Joseph in a sense is the most relatable that we can identify with. Here's why. In other stories in Genesis, it's kind of an unfair advantage. So for example, if you ask me like, Sam, how do you have faith in God? And I told you, you know why? It's because I went outside and there was a burning bush and God talked to me. Well, well, that's not fair. I don't see any burning bushes. Or if you ask me like, hey, how do you know that God is real? I said, oh, I literally wrestled God. You'd be like, oh, I didn't wrestle God. That's not fair. Or say like, hey, an angel showed up to me and told me a message. That's literally what happens to all these patriarchs. His own father wrestled with God, right? But Joseph, God is not really there. There are no angels. There are no supernatural miracles. In fact, the only superpower that Joseph has comforting for us is because today that promise is true of you. The Lord is with you. In just as real of a way. And that's the promise we share. The quote again regarding that says, God is always and everywhere in the business of taking the worst things that happen to us. And going to work on them for the purpose of multiplying wholeness and blessing. So because God is in the story, we can rest assured that it will not end in loss and trauma. Because there will always be a turn, another chapter, another path, another grace. So Joseph is able to forgive because he holds this delicate tension between soberly realizing that he has been sinned against. While trusting that beyond and even above that, God is purposeful and sovereign over even the greatest hurts and pains. Perspective matters. Now third, let's bring it a little more down to earth, the practice. Now if you're like me again, the idea of forgiveness, it sounds so nice in theory, but it's very complicated in practice. Even uh, multiple sermons probably won't get, get, you know, a real good grasp. But let me try to help scratch the surface of what helped me a lot. I found the best analogy for me to kind of grasp forgiveness and not take it so lightly and see that it's actually costly. is through the analogy and concept of, of money, financial debt. In fact, Jesus himself uses an analogy in the New Testament. I think it's because all of us love money, <laughs> like quite frankly. We're all money hungry. We all want more of it. We get really sad when we lose it. So a helpful way to understand why forgiveness is so difficult is because when somebody sins against you and wrongs you, you cannot help from feel like in that moment they are now in debt to you. That's why it's called payback. You did something, I'm going to pay you back for what you did to me, right? They have to pay for what they did. Silly illustration that always helped for me that this actually happened to me on this idea of debt and payment. When I was a, a youth group student, uh, I bought a brand new guitar with my own money. $300. I know that sounds like a little, but back then, because that was like $3,000 to me, okay. And so I got this guitar. A few days later, I took it to a retreat. Long story short, a friend asked me, can I play with it? I said, absolutely. Just don't break it. He broke it. And in that moment, my friend has now sinned against me <laughs> in my eyes. He has now incurred a debt in my heart. He broke my guitar. And I called Guitar Center and they said, this fix is going to cost $50 to fix. Now, I have two options and only two in that moment. I can either tell him the way, two options. The third, like someone seems to try to take that does not exist is that the debt just vanishes. Like if I told him, hey, all good, brother. The guitar's still broken. <laughs> Somebody has to pay for it. And therein why, that's why forgiveness, it's not as easy as it sounds, right? Tim Keller, he wrote a book on this. I, I think he's very helpful in explaining it. This is what he says regarding forgiveness, and I quote, Forgiveness means giving up the right to seek payment from the one who harmed you. In other words, forgiveness, I think is the best phrase for it. It is a form of voluntary suffering. To forgive is to cancel a debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. But someone always pays every debt. 
You see, so, when somebody sins against you, in one sense, they take something from you. It may not necessarily be money, but it can be your reputation. It could be your comfort. It could be expectations. It could be your plans. And when they take something from you in that way, you are left with two options. You can either pay them back by taking from them what they took from you. So they talk crap on me, I'm going to talk crap on them. You can relish in the relational distance and be cold towards them and avoid them and no longer live out the relational harmony that Christians are called to have. You can slander them or you can just harbor malicious thoughts towards them. And particularly Asian culture, we're better at that, right? When we see each other, we're cool, but there's like hatred and vengeance brewing in our hearts. So you could do that or you can forgive them. And what that means is to choose to not pay them back and to absorb the cost. So going back to my story, do you know what I ended up doing? I took the third route that doesn't exist. <laughs> I said, hey, brother, all good. It's just a guitar. You don't have to pay for it. And you know what I did? I made him pay for it for years after that. Not through money, but I grew bitter towards him. There was a relational distance towards us. It ate me up inside because I was so angry about him. And here's how I knew I didn't really forgive him. Number one, I would avoid him. Number two, whenever anything bad was said about this guy, I got excited. I joined in that conversation. I said, yeah, that guy is whack. He like breaks guitars and stuff like that. And thirdly, we are, the curse of sin is real. I'll say it for us because it's hard to admit. I wanted something bad to happen to one of his stuff. Because I wanted him to pay for the feeling I felt. And I almost would glory if he broke his guitar. You see, that's what sin is. That's what the curse does. And this is why the it's all good approach to forgiveness, it will not work because it fails to be honest about the damage that has taken place as a result of sin. So the bigger question is, how do you actually forgive when our natural instinct is to want payback? Let's be honest about that. How can you possibly absorb the debt when it actually just pisses you off and it makes you so bitter? The cost is great. Point number four, the power of forgiveness. Every secular field of study, mental health, physical health, emotional health, relational health, all agree forgiveness has power. Forgiveness is powerful. And the power is twofold. It's an unforgiveness or on the flip side, it could be you can genuinely forgive. Now, obviously, again, I'm just giving a general overview. I understand there are so many different nuances. Forgiveness is hard. In fact, just look at the story of Joseph. It took him 20 years. So in no way am I saying, therefore, there's a blanket statement, now go forgive. Some people have really been hurt, really been pained, really been sinned against. So I'm not trying to just gloss over these things. It could take a process. It could be up and down process. But generally speaking, in the end, forgiveness has the same power regardless. And as I mentioned earlier, the problem that Genesis presents is through the entrance of sin into our lives, we almost cannot help but sin against God and one another. And if we peel back and look at the journey that Genesis has taken us on overall, we see that the story of Cain and Abel, through that, that the curse of sin leads to death, distance, and destruction. But track with me here. But at the end of Genesis, we see a sneak preview now of how God plans to resolve that problem of sin. And again, it's not through judgment, it's through forgiveness. 
when Joseph forgives his brothers, we see a genuine picture of the start of the reversal of the curse in a way. How so? His act of forgiveness, what does it do? It draws them close when they were once far. It brings salvation to his family by having them settle in a place called Goshen, which is a fascinating thing. Without getting too much into it, Goshen actually resembles Eden. Really quickly, if you look at there in the beginning, Genesis 128, Eden was a place where God blessed and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Later, through forgiveness and the window that it creates, Israel and all of Joseph's family, they end up in a land of Goshen. And notice the parallel here. They gained possessions in it and they were fruitful and they multiplied greatly. In other words, forgiveness seems to be this crux where it's bringing things back to how it ought to be. In other words, God is giving a sneak preview on what will be his grand redemptive plan to invite all sinners near to him again and to close the relational gap that was caused by sin. And the way he's going to do that is by forgiving you, which is this. So who's going to pay for it? I always don't realize how much it's going to cost. <laughs> so I say, we should do this, we should do that, we should do this. And somebody always says, okay, so who's going to pay for it? And then immediately my plans are destroyed, right? Because I'm too idealistic. How idealistic is it to think all of mankind's sins will be paid for in full? Who could possibly pay for that? Who's going to make a way for the curse to be reversed? And then you start to see hints in the story that says, curse is the man who hangs on a tree. Okay, so it seems like somebody's going to do it and they're going to take the curse. Who's going to break this cycle of death and destruction? And that's where the story, in a sense, is a larger story of God's sovereignty in the same way that he did in Joseph's life. To pave the way forward to Calvary where now you see Jesus hanging on the cross to just do that. Pay our debt of sin. Let me just briefly re-preach the gospel if you guys don't mind. A lot of non-Christians, they'll say that the cross makes no sense. They say things like, why did Jesus have to die? God is all-powerful. Why couldn't he just forgive? And using the whole analogy I've given, well, let me ask you. If somebody deeply wrongs you and sins against you and somebody says, hey, why don't you just forgive? How does that feel? Is that possible? No, because as we learned, there is a real payment that is required. And the two ways it's solved, if you're sinned against, is number one, you make them suffer for what they did, which God has every right to do. He is holy. Or you refuse to make them suffer, you forgive them, and then you suffer. And therein lies the gospel formula. On the cross, we see what choice God made. We see the cost of our sin. The disobedience, the rebellion that we act on a week-to-week basis, that our hearts go numb to and our consciences are serious, we don't think it's a big deal, that's nailed Christ to the cross. That's what an offense towards the holy God deserves. Punishment. And yet we see the voluntary suffering of Christ, the Son of God, who absorbed our debt and suffered in full. And so the heart of the gospel, again, is about the voluntary forgiveness we find through our sinless Savior, Jesus Christ. As I close, I know most of us know this, and so let me just reiterate, the issue is not that we don't know this. The issue is that I don't think many of us exercise the faith to actually believe it. To actually believe it. Because if you don't believe this, you will never actually be able to forgive others genuinely because the cost is too high. If God's forgiveness towards you is conceptual, your forgiveness towards others is conceptual. Kind of see how that works? Your reputation matters too much. Your comfort matters too much. It has to be paid for. And so the basic principle here is, well, you cannot give that which you do not have. 
And so a closing illustration that's been really helpful for me that I find is a good reminder for us. Many of us use Venmo, right, to spend money. And I love how simple Venmo is. And one thing I love about Venmo is when you open it up on your phone, it says Venmo account balance, and it tells you how much money you have in your account. And for some reason, sometimes I'll let the money rack up, and when it says I have like hundreds of dollars in my Venmo account, you know what happens? I became a generous person. Somebody says, you want to go eat? And I look at my Venmo balance. I'm like, sure, let me buy your food. Somebody says, you want to pitch in? Look at my Venmo account. I got so much money. Yeah, let me take care of yours too. Let's go get coffee. But when my Venmo balance is at zero, I become the stingiest human on this planet. You want to go eat? No. You want to go do this? No. Why? I have nothing to give. And spiritually speaking, it is the same exact way. Many of us are sitting here with our spiritual bank account sitting at empty because we've either forgotten or we've never really experienced the true wealth of God's grace and forgiveness in our hearts. And here's the gospel clicker there. You cannot fill that bank account with works, service, or willpower. The takeaway message is not, therefore, do your best to become a forgiving person because you've missed the message altogether. You're not a forgiving person. You're infected. So how then do you become forgiving? Realize you are forgiven. The account, spiritually speaking, for you to dispense out grace only operates on grace. So let me ask you, how is your distance with God these days? I have this sneaking suspicion. Some of you feel really far from God, not because of sin, guilt that you harbor and you think this is not forgivable. You've created a self-proclaimed distance. And as we close, much in the same way as Joseph, I think what Jesus says today and every Sunday is, come near to me. Bridge the gap. Repent. I want to show you that you are forgiven. I'm your father. Most importantly, that I'm still writing your story. It's not done. You'll have a vantage point later, much like we do for Joseph. But until then, take heart.